What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Mariupol, which has been subjected to heavy Russian bombardment. Mariupol burning. Apartment blocks in ruins after weeks of unrelenting Russian bombardments. A witness to the siege of Mariupol on his country's future after two years of war. That's coming up on day six. Today, Beyonce tops the country charts. Beyonce was able to break through because of her celebrity. Will it open the door for more black artists? What they witnessed in Rafa. I may have left Gaza, but I think Gaza will never leave me. A Canadian doctor on her week in southern Gaza. And Ron Sexsmith at 60. That's another pinch myself moment. A celebrated songwriter looks back on a remarkable career. All today on Day 6, the Share Your Secret Heart edition. Someone once told me, Wars don't start with explosions, they start with silence. When we realized that the invasion was imminent, our team decided to go to Mariupol. We were sure it would be one of the main targets, but we could never imagine the scale and that the whole country would be under attack. That's journalist Mstislav Chernov beginning his Oscar-nominated documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. He and a small team with the Associated Press chronicled the first weeks of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war began two years ago today, on February 24th, 2022. They quickly became the only journalist operating out of the key city of Mariupol as the city was surrounded by Russian forces and cut off from the world. What they documented helped shape international news coverage and the world's understanding of the war. Mr. Slav Chernov, welcome to Day 6. Thank you for the invitation. In the beginning of the documentary, you say you never imagined the scale of Russia's siege on Mariupol and and on all of Ukraine. Was there a moment for you when the enormity of what was happening became clear? Um, I would say that as a Ukrainian uh, and as a journalist who was covering uh, different wars around the world, I've always expected that this might escalate beyond what Russia did with uh, annexing the Crimea and attacking Donbass in 2014. And we've seen Russian forces building up on the borders of Ukraine. But when it did happen, when they started the attack, we were all shocked just by, by the fact that it was coming from everywhere and every city was under attack. And then Russia started to bomb Mariupol. I didn't know what was happening to other cities at that point. But the bombing was so indiscriminate and, and so intensive that that exceeded my worst expectations. 
Now, there's so many difficult moments in the documentary, heartbreaking moments. I mean, one of the moments that sticks with me is the scene of doctors and nurses crying as they try to resuscitate a, a dying child. And, of course, then you have this, this doctor yelling at you to, to continue filming, to, to show people what, what Putin is doing. Can you tell me a bit about what that was like to experience? It's so hard to think about those moments, just knowing that these are not, not only children who were killed. There are many, many, many more to think about that. And also to think about my daughters always brings me to tears. Everybody thought in the beginning, that this is some kind of a mistake that it can't be. And then that that feeling of a helplessness that was among the doctors and, and of course I, I shared it deeply. The feeling that you can't stop it. And that is why this film exists. And that's what I wanted to capture. How unacceptable the war is, how horrifying it is, just to show how it feels to be trapped, to be afraid for your life every minute. And that's the experience that millions of people are going through right now in the world, not only in Ukraine. And uh, we should think about that and we should do something about it, I guess, if we can. You know, you talk about the, the impact of the, the footage of the film. I certainly felt that way when, when I was watching it. I, I felt like I was right there. You know, you capture the immediate aftermath of the bombing of a maternity ward. When you were sending that footage back to your editors, do you, did you realize the impact that it would have? It didn't have the impact, though. That's, that's the question. As a journalist, I doubt that it changed anything because look at what's happening now. Things got worse. And it might have, and I really, really want to this to be true. It, it have had an immediate impact on negotiations on the opening of a green corridor for civilians to escape out of the besieged town. It helped families to find their loved ones through the photos and videos that we were able to, to send. If that helped and saved some lives, I am already happy. But, you know, I can't stop a bullet with a camera. I cannot... Uh, stop a catastrophic bleeding by taking a picture. Um, so how do I, what, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? Well, I think it was important for the people uh, on the ground that you filmed. I, I want to play you a clip from uh, Vladimir, a police officer who helped you leave. At one point, he tells you he wants to make a statement first in Ukrainian and then in English. Rodom. Пологовий будинок. Russian troops commit war crimes. Our people need help from international society. Please help Mariupol. There are many times throughout the documentary when people express a sentiment along the lines of once the world knows what is happening, they will stop this. So as we now mark the two-year anniversary of the war, how do those kinds of sentiments resonate with you? I wouldn't call them the sentiment. I would call it a necessity to be heard because 
it's it's horrible to lose everything, but it's even worse to to know that no one cares about it. And and that's why when when people saw us with cameras, they asked to record not because they hoped that it will change something, but because they wanted to be because they wanted to be heard, and that allowed them to to keep fighting. So we have to make sure this is what we keep doing, especially after so many years of this invasion, especially after the world keeps getting tired somehow of this news. And especially because Ukraine for many politicians became a bargaining chip, a political topic, rather than a humanitarian catastrophe, which needs to be, needs to be addressed. I mean, speaking of that political reluctance, we've seen in the U.S. that funding for supporting Ukraine has become entrenched in partisan politics. In Canada, there's also hesitation around federal funding and support for Ukraine. What is it like for you to see these kinds of political battles and that that reluctance to to support Ukraine? But that's that's exactly my my worry. Everyone keeps talking about politics, but we forget that every day. People are dying. All these conversations and doubts, they result into very, very real loss of innocent human lives. And when people in Ukraine, when they ask me, hey, yeah, so, you know, you've been abroad, you know, you, what's, what's going on? Why, why we are forgotten? I, I don't have an answer for them. I, I don't know. I don't know. Within the dock, uh, the grief and the emotions that you feel leaving the city are, are so palpable. But it's clear that if you stayed on, you would have been in enormous danger. What was going through your mind as you were leaving? We had um, a great composer, Jordan Dykstra, was writing a music for our film. We discussed a late motif, which we called grief. This late motif of grief, loss, is um, how I express my feelings. A feeling that we're leaving other people behind, and a feeling of grief for what we all lost feeling that we all had to leave with it somehow. But moreover, I felt such a big responsibility to to carry the footage, which we had uh, original files on hard drives and cards. So it was, it was so important not to get, not to be captured. And if we got captured, we might have been killed. And even worse, um, Everything we filmed could be could be claimed as as, uh, as uh, fake. What bothers me is the fact that the international audience doesn't always understand the gravity of what is happening in Ukraine. But if you look into how Russia motivates this war to its own people, they are openly stating that they are currently at war with US and Europe. So if Ukraine falls, the war will just move on to other cities, 
Um, and there will be more cities like Mariupol, unfortunately. Mr. Slav, I know this is a, a difficult time. It is the two-year anniversary of that invasion. So I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Mr. Slav Chernov is a journalist with the Associated Press. He made the documentary 20 Days in Mariupol, which is up for an Oscar this year. I'm Dr. Fazia Alvi. I'm a Canadian physician working and living in Calgary area. So I'm on my way back from Rafa in southern Gaza. This week, a small group of Canadian doctors were on their way back home after spending a week providing medical assistance to people in Rafa. There are about 1.5 million displaced Palestinians seeking shelter in Rafa, which is located in Gaza's southernmost tip, right up against the border with Egypt. Fighting and the ongoing Israeli bombardment continues nearby. Meanwhile, the flow of aid into Rafah has almost dried up. Dr. Fazia Alvi is a physician in Calgary. She's also the founder of the medical relief charity Humanity Auxilium. We asked her what she witnessed while she was in Rafah. So when I arrived in Gaza, we arrived in one of the hospitals on our first day, and I immediately realized that the suitcases of medical supplies we brought, they were not enough. The hospital was stretched out beyond capacity with the injured and sick. The hallways were overflowing with patients and refugees. And we saw that besides the physical and emotional trauma of the assault, a widespread malnourishment was apparent almost in every single individual we met. And some of those people showed us their picture on their phones from four months ago, and we could not no longer recognize them as the same person. We were seeing starving children, small babies with the pneumonia. And so those children who survived the bombing, who survived the, you know, the sniper shots, so they were dying with pneumonia, basically. You know, as a family care physician, I felt completely overwhelmed. As you know, I gave paracetamol to the patients with amputated limbs suffering from excruciating pain because this is all we had available. But at, I also witnessed the beauty of the life while surrounded by death and destruction in Gaza. You know that while the harrowing encounters with the patients in Gaza will forever linger in my memory, what truly struck me about most about the Palestinian is their unwavering communal resi- resilience. I was so moved, you know, to see the local physician and nurses who have been working day and night for the last four months. I call them heroes. All of them, they have lost someone. Coming from northern Gaza, they have lost their houses. They were living in the makeshift tents. They were literally bedsheet tents that they made it and they are living there. You know, I may have left Gaza, but I think Gaza will never leave me. So I strongly urge and plead with our governments to immediately call for a ceasefire. I'm not a lawyer or any human rights expert. I'm a physician, but as a physician, as a mother, and most important, as a human, what we have seen, it was just purely genocide. This is truly a war against babies. This is a war against children. This is a war against women. It's um, utter failure of humanity. 
Dr. Fazia Alvi is a physician in Calgary and the founder of the medical relief charity Humanity Auxilium. Still to come on day six, a Vancouver restaurant run by Syrian refugees goes from pop-up to permanent. I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Bambury. This ain't Texas. That's Beyonce's latest single, Texas Hold'em. The song made history this week after it debuted at number one on Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart. Beyonce is the first black woman to ever reach that spot, which is bittersweet news for a lot of black country artists and fans. Obviously, very happy for her, and that's definitely something to celebrate and accomplishment. Um, But there also is a lot of frustration around it as well, because there are so many Black women that have been making music and trying to get on these charts, and they're given these ridiculous hoops to jump through to even be considered on radio. That's Holly G. She's been working to make the country music industry more inclusive for years. Holly is the founder of the Black Opry in Nashville, Tennessee, where she works to amplify and advocate for Black country music artists and fans. So there were a lot of women that paved the way for what Beyonce is doing now, but I think it's a little bit disingenuous to describe what she's doing as following in their footsteps. Beyonce was able to break through because of her celebrity. She did not work through the country system to get to where she got on the charts. And so the path is a little bit different, but there were definitely women who have been trying to do this for a long time. I think about Frankie Staten, who worked with the Black Country Music Association back in the 90s. And, you know, she just got her Grand Ole Opry debut back in 2023. There was her, there was Linda Martell, who was the first woman to play the Grand Ole Opry. There was Reese Palmer, who back in 2007 was able to break through on the country charts as a black woman and the first black woman in 20 years at the time that had been on those charts. I mean, I could go on forever. (laughs) There's a lot of women, and unfortunately, it's taken this for them to get a lot of the spotlight that they deserve. But now that we're here, I'm hoping that it will shine more light on them and give them more opportunities and the opportunities that they deserve. So if you look at country music, I mean, if you look at everything from like the flyers for the festivals to the music videos to the artists, the bands, the background singers... If you've ever been backstage at a show, all of those people are white people. When you are consuming something, it is really hard to feel like you fit in or you have a place there when you don't see a single other person that looks like you. And when you do, it's kind of like a flash in the pan and it's a very, very quick thing that typically kind of comes and goes really quick. I was looking around and I was seeing that nobody in the country music space was standing up for the things that I believed in. And so I had to make a decision. Either either I was going to stop listening to country music because it didn't align with who I was, or I was going to have to find a better way to consume it that felt more ethically aligned with who I was as a person. It is so difficult to explain what the Black Opry is because since it did happen so organically, it wasn't there wasn't like a structure for it. 
I was hoping to connect with other black people initially that just listened to country music. But what happened was when I put it online, there were a bunch of black artists that came forward and were like, hey, we, we need this space. Nobody else is like platforming or advocating for us. And so I listened to the artists. I'd spend a lot of time having conversations with them to find out what it is that they need to feel like they can do their jobs better. I mostly describe it as a community. It's a collective of artists and people in the industry and fans like myself who want to see Black artists succeed making this music. I think that Beyonce being in this space will definitely open the door to new fans for country music. I've seen personally that's already been happening and I'm really, really grateful to her fans. She has such a powerful fan base and I feel like they just kind of like showed up on our doorstep <laughs> overnight. I hope that we are able to engage them in a way that keeps them being country music fans beyond the lifespan of Beyonce's stretching country music. There's a huge community of queer people and disabled people and people of all backgrounds and races and perspectives that are making this music. Unfortunately, they just have not been given the same attention and platform in the mainstream. I don't think that Beyonce's presence in this space will necessarily change anything within the systems that exist. That's not anything Beyonce has any control over, nor her fans. That's going to be up to the gatekeepers that have made it that way. I'm hoping that now that the door has kind of been open for them to do things a little differently, they will do them differently for other people as well. Holly G is the founder of the Black Opry in Nashville, Tennessee. Taibe is a social enterprise that aims to empower newly arrived Syrian women chefs um, by giving them the opportunity to generate an income for themselves and their families and to be financially independent in exchange for their delicious homestyle Syrian food. That's Nihal Elwan, the founder and owner of Taibe Foods, speaking back in 2018. At the time, Taibe had become well known in the Vancouver area for putting on pop up dinner events featuring Syrian food. After that, Taibe started catering events. And this month, it opened a full-service restaurant in Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Taibe's journey began eight years ago when Nihal Elwan recruited a small group of refugee women who had fled the war in Syria. Four women agreed to cook their favorite recipes from back home for a pop-up dinner event. The rest is history. Nihal Elwan is in Vancouver. Nihal, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Manjula. Thank you so much for having me. Now, if I walked into Taipei with a group of friends for dinner tonight, what would you recommend I have? I would recommend you start with our classic Syrian hummus. Very popular here in Vancouver. We don't put garlic in it or any additives. It's just beautiful, clean, really flavorful. Uh, and then you move on to a hot appetizer. If you're a meat eater, you would try the kibbe. Now, kibbe is a a quintessentially Syrian or Levantine dish. It is one of the crown jewels of Syrian cuisine. It is a beautiful sort of beef croquette with a crust made with uh, beef and crushed bulgur wheat. And then it's shaped into sort of uh, conical almost shapes or sort of round shapes and then filled with ground beef, crushed walnuts and beautiful spices. So that would be a wonderful appetizer to have. 
Or if you're a vegetarian, I would recommend you have the cheese sambusak, crispy, golden, really delicious. And then moving on to mains, uh, again, if you're a meat eater, I would suggest you have our beef and tomato sauce. And that is a meal that includes the all beef meatballs with tomato sauce, rice, hummus, and salad. So it's a really solid filling meals, meal full of flavor and really delicious. Oh, all of this sounds so delicious. I've had breakfast, but now you've, you've made me hungry again. <laughs> uh, what does Taibe mean? Taibe is an Arabic word that means kind in the feminine form, because in Arabic, there's masculine and feminine. So it's kind in the feminine form. And in the Syrian or Levantine dialect, it means delicious. So kind and delicious. And we found that this word really describes the essence of who we are and what we're trying to offer. Now, you're not a chef or a restaurateur. Your background is in international development. So how did you first meet these Syrian women who were to become Taibe's chefs? Um, back in 2015, you know, like everyone, I was watching TV and watching the civil war unfold in Syria and Canada receiving tens of thousands of refugees from Syria. And then I volunteered uh, briefly to help with um, the resettlement of newly arrived families, and I help with interpretation and so on. So I met a lot of Syrian families, and I was particularly moved by uh, the experience of women among them, you know, for whom everything was new. And of course, they came from, you know, PTSD and loss and having to lose everything to and coming here to start a new life and so on. And so, uh, you know, I'm not Syrian myself, I'm Egyptian. But if you are from the Middle East, you know that Syrian food is you know, known to be an incredible cuisine, very rich, very flavorful, very diverse as well. And so I had this idea um, where, uh, you know, I thought, what do Syrian women know how to do super well? It is to cook incredible food. And so uh, I had this idea of organizing a pop-up dinner event where I would invite some Syrian women to cook for quote-unquote Canadians. Now, my idea at the time for it was going to be a one-time volunteer effort, you know, where we would do this one time, the women would sort of try to cook and that would be it. So I, I basically called some women, some Syrian women. I said, hey, do you want to cook for some Canadians that you don't know? <laughs> and, you know, they all got excited about the idea. And so I met with four women. We put together a menu of beautiful Syrian dishes. Each woman wanted to cook two or three um, different dishes. Yeah. And then we borrowed a wonderful Palestinian restaurant owned by some friends of ours here in Vancouver for the night on the day that the restaurant was closed. And then, you know, we came up with the name Taibe. Uh, we created a Facebook invitation and said, come and eat Syrian food. And the beautiful thing about this is that nobody knew what Syrian food was. Um, but I think the tickets were sold out within a day or two when it was really because people wanted to come and support uh, Syrian newcomers here in Vancouver. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that day, our first pop-up dinner event. Uh, I distinctly remember uh, the faces of the team members. Initially, I could see so much anxiety and worry and sort of uncertainty. None of them could speak any English. Oh. So it was very hard for them to kind of figure out what was going on at the time. They couldn't connect with anyone. And I remember sort of when we sort of opened the buffet, they all stood back kind of against the wall watching the reaction. But then very quickly, it became evident that people loved the food and people would go up and serve themselves seconds and thirds 
which was so beautiful. And you could see the relief and then the joy on the, on the Syrian women's faces. And then the most beautiful thing happened. People would go up to them, you know, the diners and they would hug them. And it was so emotional, almost, almost to the, to the surprise of the Syrian ladies. They were, what's going on? But people felt so much empathy towards the Syrian newcomers, you know, towards the plight of Syrians. People would hug them and were very emotional and would tell them things like, don't worry, we're here. It was an incredibly beautiful experience. And so out of that experience, uh, the lady said, oh my God, this was amazing. Let's do it again. And from that point forward, you know, we organized our second pop-up dinner event and then our series of pop-up dinners that were always sold out everywhere we went. And that became sort of the seed for Taipei to be launched as a full-service catering company and everything that happened afterwards. What have you heard the women say about what this experience has has meant to them? I specifically remember this example, uh, and that was said by my my head chef, who's been with me since day one. Uh, she was asked by a journalist what is the most valuable thing in her experience with Taibe. And I remember her answering, uh, the moment that my son wanted to buy something, and instead of asking his father for money, he came to me, and I opened my purse, and I gave him money that I had earned through my work. And the feelings that she had when she was giving him that money, how independent, fulfilled she felt. Mm. Now, before I let you go, you know that in the last couple of years, we've had the war in Ukraine and now, of course, the war in Gaza. What would you say to people about this sort of welcoming and opening of arms to refugees from war that you've experienced and undertaken? Why is it important to do that? I think people who haven't come close to or haven't interacted with uh, a refugee probably don't really understand what it means for somebody to be forced to lose everything and be forced to leave their home country. It's not a choice that they make. And so when Canada receives refugees, it's giving them an opportunity to begin again and for their children to grow somewhere that is safe and secure I think Canada uh, should continue to be the welcoming country that allows people to come in and contribute to this wonderful, rich tapestry. And at the same time, I hope that Canada will not in any way directly or indirectly contribute to wars, conflict, genocide, or anything that creates more refugees and forces people to leave their home countries. Canada should always be this benevolent state that has its hands clean. Canada needs to be always even-handed and consider all refugees equally, regardless of their race, ethnicity, you know, what kind of conflict they went through. Everybody needs to be welcome because every refugee that comes here wants to prove themselves and wants to work hard and rebuild the life. Nihal, thank you for speaking with Day6. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and, and happy cooking. Thank you so much. I'm going to go do some of that now with the team. <laughs> thank you. Nihal Elwan is the founder and owner of Taibay, a Syrian restaurant and food caterer in Vancouver. Still to come on day six, celebrated songwriter Ron Sexsmith looks back on a remarkable career as he gets ready to celebrate his 60th birthday at Massey Hall. I distinctly remember hearing someone yell, stop that van. From CBC Podcasts. An investigation into how young men are being recruited and radicalized on the internet. And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian. 
by a new supercharged form of hate. On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun. A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambri. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day 6. And, and your ancestor was already a minister. Isaac J. Hill would preach to the men while they were out at war. He would preach to them. And Alexander Newton was sitting around listening to him. He was just fascinated by this, your, your ancestor. That's John Mills. He's the president and founder of a research nonprofit called the Alex Brienne Corporation. And he uses genealogy to reconstruct the missing histories of enslaved people in the United States. John first realized the power of genealogical research when he was researching his own family's past. Since then, he's done numerous deep dives into the stories of enslaved African Americans and black Civil War veterans whose lives and deaths went unrecorded or unrecognized. Then he shares his findings with the person's descendants, turning genealogy into activism. Genealogy helped me interrogate my own unconscious biases. It helped me find a path to how I could maybe help others choose to self-reflect, self-interrogate. I'm 53 years old. My grandparents were big heroes of mine. My grandfather, Mylon Mills, passed away in 1987. Some time after he had passed, I was struggling with bias, racism in the workforce, and another aspect of my life. And as a means to try to challenge those things that I was being impacted by, as well as colorism biases that I started to interrogate in my own self that I had, I started applying genealogical research to understand where this all came from and how I may be able to attack it. Late 90s, my sister brought it to my attention that my father's father, my grandfather, Miley Mills, that his grandfather's name was Ned Mills and was from Texas, was an enslaved man freed on June 19th, 1865, considered Juneteenth. And that fascinated me. I never heard of anybody in my family being enslaved before. It was brand new to me. Then I discovered that his surname was simply a surname of a prior enslaver. I grew up with this pride that was based in you know, a blood genealogical tie to the name Mills, only to discover that you know a hundred or so years prior, Mills was just the name of a white enslaver. And so that was a lot to kind of process. I mean, it it may seem like a simple piece of bit of information, but to me it was uh, pretty deep to have to like think through that. What I learned about many of the lines of, you know, the, of my ancestors were that they were not the exceptionalists, that history considers the exceptionalists. They didn't make a lot of money, they didn't conquer any land. They weren't the Martin Luther King or the 
Medgar Evers or the Harriet Tubman or the Rosa Parks. They were just people who struggled but persisted, right? And because they persisted, I exist. And to me, that was enough to make them exceptional. And I wanted to put a light on not the one in a million, but the million, because that those were my descendants. Many of these people were intentionally not documented. There was a colorism, bias, and racism past. And so it's not an accident that this information isn't readily available and is very difficult to dig and find. They weren't considered of value, which is why the information is lost, hidden, in some instances don't doesn't exist anymore. Once I get deep into a story and I find lots of information on an individual, I feel like this is the information owned by the descendants. It feels to me like it's been stolen from them. It just feels right to find them now, current day descendants, and hand it to them. When I finally found or saw the location where my great-great-grandfather was buried in the woods behind a whites-only cemetery in Kilgore, Texas, yeah, it was uh, pretty emotional. Like, when you see that your ancestors were not only considered less valuable and segregated not only in life but in death, it, you have to process that. The whites-only cemetery is up front, and it's very well-kept and was pristine. And there's a lightly-driven path along the side of that cemetery. You walk into the woods, and then you see others buried back there. I'd heard stories before. I'd read books. But when it's about people that hold your surname, it becomes really close to current day. These people become real people. This work is important because I align digging into this information to find it as an act of activism. I align it to an act of resistance. I see it as a profound statement that an individual would go and try to find and dig up this information. It's a, it's a statement of defiance, you know, that we're not going to let this information be lost. John Mills is the president and founder of the Alex Brienne Corporation, a research nonprofit in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Heart. 
Ron Sexsmith is one of Canada's most prolific songwriters. He's released 17 albums over nearly four decades, and he wrote pretty much every song on every album. In 2005, he won the Juno Award for Songwriter of the Year, and his songs are a hit with other artists too. They've been covered by Rod Stewart, Elvis Costello, Michael Bublé, and Feist. Secret heart, why so mysterious? Last month, Ron Sexsmith turned 60, and next week to mark the occasion, he's performing at Massey Hall in Toronto. The concert has been dubbed Sexsmith at 60, and it'll be a night of great music and storytelling from his long career. Ron Sexsmith, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, Manjula. Thanks for having me. First off, happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, that was actually in January. Um, wasn't super happy about turning 60, but... There it is, you know, um, uh, it hasn't been so bad, though, actually. Now, you're celebrating this milestone at, at Massey Hall. Why Massey? What does that concert hall mean to you? Well, for me, I, I always call it the House of Gord because um, I moved to Toronto in 87 and I never missed Gord once, you know, every year that he that he played Massey Hall. it was. And we're talking about Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I should have. Yeah, Gordon Lightfoot, who is one of my heroes and... It just became sort of my favorite thing, really, to do as a Canadian, to go to Massey Hall and hear Gord's voice. You know, I've also seen Leonard Cohen and Dylan there. And there were some shows where I was, back in the old days when I was a courier, where I couldn't afford a ticket and I would listen to the show uh, by the stage door, you know. Um, it just, for me, it, it was one of those venues that I felt maybe I could get there someday. You know, I never imagined I could fill Maple Leaf Gardens or something, but I always thought if I'm patient, I could play Massey Hall and maybe I could get a good crowd. And so I, I held out forever. I, I refused to play Massey Hall until 2006 when I, I finally uh, was booked a headline. What do you remember from that concert, your first concert at Massey Hall? Yeah, I mean, it'll sound cliche, but it really felt kind of surreal just to be in the dressing room where Gord was or whoever else was, was there. Um, Speaking about Gordon Lightfoot, about 10 minutes or so before I went on, there were, I heard this huge eruption from the crowd. And I was still backstage. And I was like, well, what's going on out there? And then someone ran and told me that Gordon had just showed up. And he was he got this huge ovation just for walking in the, you know, in the <laughs> theater. Um, so, so I remember that. Also, you know, I remember being quite nervous, understandably. And it took me a few songs for my legs to stop shaking. I was just... It just felt like, you know, it's it's one of those places where you really feel a history and you want to uh, rise to the occasion if possible. You know, when you talk to uh, most sort of musical enthusiasts, music critics, they'll say that Ron Sexsmith is a critical part of the Canadian songbook. What do you say to that? Um, it's hard to know. I mean, I've I've tried to, you know, contribute to the Canadian songbook. I mean... From day one, I was very upfront about where I came from, you know, when I traveled abroad. And I've, I definitely feel the love when I travel to the UK and Ireland and all these places, you know, because I, when I was starting out, I mean, all those her the heroes were like Leonard and Joni and Neil and Gord. And that meant something to me to try and walk in their footsteps. But it's hard to know really where I stand in the whole thing, you know, where, you know, sometimes I don't really know if my contribution has much value actually and i mean it 
you you live in your head so much. You just really don't know, you know, how it all sort of shakes out in the end. But I've definitely tried to have a body of work. I'm really proud of the the music that I've I've made, and I feel for a guy who hasn't sold a whole ton of records, I I feel, you know, uh, my career has been pretty interesting. You know, I mean, I've met most of my heroes. I've had my songs covered by a lot of people. Uh, so many things happened that seemed unimaginable when I was a child. And I, and I, all I've ever wanted to do was walk in the footsteps of those giants, you know, that came before me. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the music industry doesn't owe anybody anything, you know, so, but I'm just really grateful. I've been able to hang in there and maybe, maybe down the road, I'll, someone will tell me what it all means, if, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So. Uh, you, I hear, got to perform with Leonard Cohen, oh, and yes. if I have this right, in the basement of an indigo? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, that's another pinch myself moment, but I, you know, I had recorded a Leonard song on my first album called Heart With No Companion. It was kind of like my theme song, actually. And there was this long period where he hadn't been performing, and he was sort of semi-retired. Um, but he came out with a book. And so the people at Indigo felt it would be nice if if I came down, you know, there's going to be this sort of celebration and, the, you know, the bare naked ladies were there. And and so I was going to sing Heart With No Companion and, and B&L was going to do something else. But when I arrived at the bookstore, they took me down to the basement. And as I sort of got off the elevator, I could hear people singing. So I, I walked in and and it was Bernick ladies and a bunch of other people all singing with Leonard kind of in a circle. <laughs> and, but I was, you know, I was kind of shy about it. So I was sort of hanging back against the wall and Leonard saw me and he walked over and he put his arm in my arm and he brought me into the circle, which was one of the nicest things. And someone handed me a guitar, uh, you know, and I, I'm kind of on the spectrum and I have the superpower of remembering lyrics. I could do a whole night of Leonard without rehearsing whole, whole night of Gord, all these people. And so I just started playing all these obscure Leonard songs and and Leonard was right beside me singing. And so when it came time to actually go out on the street, we were playing for about 5,000 people or something. Leonard, he said he didn't want to sing, but I could tell that he wanted to sing. So when we got up there, uh, you, you could actually see this on YouTube. We start playing So Long, Marianne. I sing the first verse and out of the corner of my eye, I see Leonard there. And I said, you know, said to myself, well, nobody wants to hear me sing a song. And, and so I, I whispered the first line into Leonard's ear and he got up and sang it. Everybody went nuts. And so if you see it at the beginning of every verse, I go whisper in his ear, you know, because it, it had been so long since he'd done that. And yeah, and that was just uh, so, you know, beyond <laughs> belief, really. Yeah. So he, he, all those guys, I mean, they just kind of wrote the book and, they changed my life. So anytime I got a chance to rub elbows with one of those people, it was just, yeah, unforgettable. We heard a little bit of Leslie Feist singing Secret Heart earlier. Your songs have been covered by Rod Stewart, Emily Harris. What's it like for you to hear someone else performing one of your songs? It's, well, you know, um, it's kind of like when you have a kid and you, and it goes out into the world and you just want the kid to do well and you, you're rooting for it. It's like that, the songs, I feel like a proud papa when anybody feels a song is worthy of them covering it. 
Um, I mean, Feist, it was funny because I was in England making a record and my manager came in and he said, uh, somebody named Feast has just recorded one of your songs. <laughs> and, you know, and he's from Tennessee and I didn't know who he was talking about. And he said it was a French artist from Paris named Feast, you know. So he put, <laughs> so he put on Secret Heart and I loved it instantly because, and I didn't recognize that it was Leslie. And I thought, wow, her accent is so good. You don't hear any sort of French accent or anything. And it was very, her version is kind of like Europop, you know, like pretty much everyone else who has, who has done that song has done it pretty faithfully to, to what I've done, kind of a slower. But she did this kind of really catchy little pop number. So it's kind of my favorite version of that song. Now, you started your first band in St. Catharines when you were 14, mm -hmm. a Paper Moon. That's what it was called, Paper Moon. Mm -hmm. You now live in Stratford. When you look back from Paper Moon to Ron Sexsmith at 60, does it feel surreal? Has it been a good journey? Yeah, it's been um, surprising. You know, I mean, Paper Moon was like, it was just such a, I mean, one week we would be detectives, the next week we'd have a rock band, you know, like when you're kids, right? You're just sort of, it just, you're goofing around, really. And it wasn't until after high school when I, I started playing the bars and thinking, well, maybe I could make a go of this. And, you know, I love to sing, but a lot of people didn't even think I could sing very well. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, obstacles. So, but it's weird, you know, it's like, I can't remember, there's a quote where they say, while you're living... Everything just feels chaotic and doesn't make any sense. But when you look back on it, it's like a finely crafted novel. And I really believe that, you know, that's how it is, really, when I look back on my life. Like, all these things that had to happen in order for this to happen. And, you know, and, and so I'm just really grateful. Uh, I always seem to be in the right place at the right time. And you will be again <laughs> on the stage at Massey Hall. Ron, such a delight speaking with you. Thank you, and, uh, and good luck with the concert. Thank you so much for having me. It means a lot. Thank you. Ron Sexsmith's concert, Sexsmith at 60, is at Massey Hall in Toronto on Thursday. And from his latest album, The Vivian Line, here he is with What I Had in Mind. I've always seen school days September eyes could never concentrate Gentle reaching blue 
of gray in these November skies. So another year decays to cut you down to size. Heading out of town for a show. Down the Vivian. Time, weather, and this is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a Day 6 tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Did you ever see a turkey, a turkey, turkey? Did you ever see a turkey playing a brass lie trombone? Auckland Bloodworth with Did You Ever See a Turkey? Joan Osborne with Spiderweb? And Claude Barzotti with Madame? Stu Yule of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, correctly guessed the headline we were looking for. Madame Webb gets panned mercilessly. Congratulations, Stu. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. This old ain't about to forget All we've had What's the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put Rift from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Laurie Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord West McCod. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6. Eggplant jam. Is it good? Eggplant jam? I have to tell you that I'm addicted to it. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.